Hey, and welcome to The Living Stone, a digital ministry of Greystone Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm Annabeth Cross, Associate Minister for Students and Digital Discipleship here at Greystone. And today I'm joined again by our senior pastor, Chrissy Tatum-Williamson. Hello. Today we're continuing our series for this Lenten season by asking honest questions here on The Living Stone podcast. Each episode is centered around questions to guide our conversation, questions asked by members of our own congregation, from some of our youngest members and our children, all the way to our senior adults. Today's main questions that we'll focus on are, who is God and who are we? (laughs) Simple questions, right? (laughs) Yeah. We start with the easiest ones. What's the Bible? Who is God? Who are we? (laughs) You know, but we're all asking them in different ways, right? (laughs) We are. We are. Um, So we're going to expand these two basic questions a little bit, and Christy's going to lead us in this discussion about what's the nature of God in relationship with humanity? A bigger question, (laughs) a little bit, but... Yeah, so as uh, Annabeth and I started thinking about like what's important to talk about when we attempt to share some thoughts on the mystery of who God is and what that means for God's relationship with humanity, we kind of found ourselves thinking about this as a two-part question because relationship implies more than one entity. So if we're going to break it down um, and share some thoughts about who God is, then we also need to think about who is humankind. And what is the nature of the relationship between God and humanity? So we're going to start with who is God first. Um, Who is God with us and how does God act? Um, And, you know, we are um, Baptists. And Baptists do have this principle of like no creed but the Bible. (laughs) So it's important to talk about the Bible as we're building our theology. But it's also important to remember that throughout history, there have been a number of different theologies that are all rooted in the Bible. Or that all claim a lot of different theologies. A lot of different theologies, (laughs) right? Um, Like even a lot of Protestant Christian theologies. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's important just to recognize the diversity of that field. Um, So what I hope to share today and what I think Annabeth hopes to share today are some thoughts from some different theologies that we've interacted with in different kind of spots in our journeys um, and theological discovery. So thinking about, um, about... theology, doctrines of God, um, things that kind of describe who God is, there are four kind of classical um, teachers for us about who God is. Um, It's called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. quadrilateral, That's the model. Um, If you've been to a Bible study at church, odds are you've heard me say (laughs) that word or those two words before, because I think it's super important that we remember that always when we're creating our theologies and we're trying to articulate Uh, language about who God is, uh, we are using reason, so like our logic, our brains. Uh, We are using whatever um, science is teaching us, which means it's always temporal, what we're trying to say about God, because science is always changing. We're using scripture, that's the biblical piece. And we're also being informed by, as we are informing, Christian tradition Mm -hmm. as it kind of unfolds. So reason, science, scripture, and tradition are kind of the four main shapers of our theologies. So, to go back to remember our question, who is God? Um, We want to start with the Bible, because like I said earlier, we're Baptist. Um, And so, just in a quick brainstorm, um, thinking about in our minds, like we didn't go Google this, these were from our minds, um, what are the stories in the Bible that teach us something of who God is? Um, And we kind of felt like 
the creation stories, right? Like we're talking yeah. in the office earlier. The creation stories kind of are stories, plural, because in the Bible there are two creation stories. What? I know. Surprise. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> um, those form our very first impression of who God is. Um, and, you know, one of my favorite pieces of scripture is Genesis 1, where God um, is in existence already before the story begins. God is, um, and nothing else is. Uh, but God says, let us create right? Um, well, first God says, let there be light. But later in that in that narrative, God refers to a, con- or the author refers to a conversation within God's own self that uses plural, um, are those pronouns? Us? Sure. No, nouns? Hmm. I don't know. Um, we're not English majors. Yeah. We're not English majors. <laughs> but God refers to God's own self in the plural. Let us create, and let and when God is creating humankind, let us make them in our image. And so one of the things, one of the conclusions that Christians have made about this, Christian theologians, some have made about this, is that um, A, this is indicative of the primordial, primordial existence of the Trinity, so kind of the timelessness of of the of God in three forms, which is a very Christian way to think about God. Um, so anyway, those are the two claims: the the preexistence of God and the existence of the Trinity. Let us create. Let us make them in our image. Um, then, and I, by the way, I told Annabeth to interrupt me because I could talk for the next five <laughs> hours on these topics. Um, so, in addition to the creation stories, you know. When we think about scripture, uh, we can't talk about the nature of God without imagining and remembering the relationship that God had with the people of Israel. Like in the Hebrew Bible, the people of Israel are God's chosen people. They are God's favorite people. They are the special Mm -hmm. people that God is in a special and peculiar relationship with. And so those stories teach us about like the covenants, those that was yeah. important to you, Annabeth. Yeah, I mean, just all. I mean, you have covenants with God and Noah. You have covenants with God and Abraham, and I mean, the list goes with David. And there's so there's so many covenants throughout mm-hmm. Scripture, specifically in the Old Testament, but also in the New. Mm-hmm. And just those covenantal relationships between God and those, um, and those people, and some of them at first glance are kind of seem like transactional relationships, but a lot of times it's. You know, they're in, to be in a covenant relationship with somebody. It's to do. It's a two way street, right? Yeah. So you're learning about who God is in this, but also about who you are, and that's kind of foreshadowing later on. But um, God wants to be in a relationship with these people. It's yeah. not like it's a punishment or like it's like in God's actively pursuing these relationships with these people. And I think that's important for us to understand the relational side of who God is for our own sake of understanding how we can be in a relationship with God too. Yeah. You know, one of the things I love about the, this, the fact that we're talking about God, um, so far we've said, who is God? God is creator. Mm-hmm. Um, God uh, is likely plural, maybe Trinity, right? And God is relational. Um, so those are two huge um, assumptions a lot of us yeah. kind of bring. But I think to say them gives them the power that they hold within the story themselves. Um, those are kind of like when you think about culture as the water you swim in that you don't really pay attention to, like that's kind of the culture of God, mm-hmm. that God um, is, is creator, that God is covenantal, God is in relationship with us, and God is Trinitarian. Those, that would be a Christian theology emerging from the very beginning of the Hebrew Bible. The other thing I like about the covenant stories, which we talked about, is that um, like when we think about the some of the key players in the story of um, the Israelites, God has a way of meeting the people where they are. 
Yeah. In order to invite them into covenant, to renew covenant, to remind them of covenant. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are lots of stories of biblical um, characters who have like flat out run away from the yes. intervention of God, and God continues to seek them out. Mm-hmm. So God is always seeking humankind. Um, God is in pursuit of the human heart because God loves us. I mean, that's what that's the sense yeah. I would make of it, right? Yeah, and God's making God's offering a lot of grace in those yeah. relationships too. Yeah, you know, all throughout the Bible, like all these people are messing up. Um, There's a lot of, like you said, running away. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of um, mistakes happening and shortcomings and all those things. And in those relationships, there's a lot of grace too, which is comforting for us. That's right. um, As well. One of the things I love about, I'm going to go back to Genesis because it's what we were talking about on Sunday here at Greystone, but in the Garden of Eden, so if Adam and Eve are the first humans, and if they are representative of all of humanity, you know, God creates them, gives them everything they could ever need, gives them one rule, and of course they break it yeah. because, you know, they're human. Um, but what I love about that is if you read it in the text between like the second half of chapter two and like all of chapter three, the, the biblical narrative is pretty clear that they were shameless before mm-hmm. they ate from the tree. So they had no shame. Um, they had nothing to be ashamed of. And then in chapter three, um, it's the, the text says that they experienced shame. They were ashamed. And so when I think about that, um, think about how often in our lives as human beings, we feel ashamed of you know, the things that we have done, or we feel shame about things that maybe have happened that we didn't have control over. Mm -hmm. And so who is God in relationship with humanity with regard to shame? Well, God does not inflict the punishment that even God said would happen, which is you eat from the tree, you die. God helped clothe humankind. Yeah. That's an amazing story of grace, I think. Yeah, that was one of the things we talked about on Youth Sunday night. It's like, you can't miss this keynote. Like, God literally clothed them before they left the garden. Yes. Like, that's important to realize, like, even when they should have died and, you know, those things. Um, like you mentioned, like, God still clothes them and protects them and provides for them. Mm. And that's comforting for us, too. And that gives a little another glimpse of who God is and God's character as well. Absolutely. So God is now creator. God is trinity or multiple God is um, covenantal, always in relationship. God is um, lavish in grace. Um, yeah, God cares for humankind. Um, you know, I, I don't think we can do this topic justice, especially if we're going to talk about a biblical theology without naming that there is a plethora of, of different perspectives on this in the Bible, and some of them are easier for us to stomach than others. Um, The book of Joshua is a really hard one um, for those (laughs) of us who like to remember God um, as love. Uh, And one of my favorite, maybe because it's not as hard as Joshua, but it's uh, almost funny in a way, like, is the book of Job. It's not funny. That's bad. Um, (laughs) But like, uh, when I read Job, I, f- I almost feel like the character of God is different than the character of God that I see in other pieces of scripture. Mm. Like, and I'm going to just talk about Job as if it's a piece of literature instead of like the sacred Bible just for a minute, because I don't want anyone to be mad at me for what I'm about to say. <laughs> uh, I'm an Enneagram three, so I don't want anyone to be mad at me ever. <laughs> but if we do read Job, we have to admit that God is not the nicest God. Like, God is basically allowing a game to unfold in the life of a human being. 
which ends in the end of life for human beings whom Job loved. It, it involves the infliction of illness, um, you know, the death of animals, the loss of income, um, utter isolation, um, isolation. Like Job really has a raw deal. And Job is pleading with God throughout, and God waits till like the ninth hour to chime in. And even then, it's like, it's not really nice. Like, what? Yeah. How, you know, God's like, where were you when I formed the earth? Who are you to complain to me, Job? And then eventually Job kind of comes around and there's a reconciliation between Job and God. But like, if this were a story about human relationships, it would be an abusive relationship. And yet it's in our text for us to wrestle with as we try to figure out who is God and how is God in relationship with us. And so some days the best I can come up with for Job and just being fair about how hard the Bible can be sometimes is like, could this be a a fable or a parable about the nature of suffering? Mm -hmm. Um, How we feel about whether or not God is with us or, or what we wonder about what's in the mind of God when we're experiencing suffering. You know, certainly we can relate to Job in that, but like, Honestly, the, if I were going to try to make something constructive out of this, sometimes the best thing I can make is, you know, God never actually leaves Job. <laughs> like, yeah. He's not always helpful and present, um, but God does remain with you know, with Job in some way at the beginning and the end. Um, but the Bible's hard. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that that story, I mean, that's the typical story you go to when people are like, why does God let bad things happen to yeah. people? And why is there suffering in the world? And we'll get to that later. But there doesn't seem to be a silver lining there. It just seems to be right. doom and gloom in ways. Yeah. But the fact that maybe God's faithful presence with Job is, maybe that's what we take out of it. Maybe so. And, you know, I think it's okay to not have an answer to that question right now. Maybe we'll yeah. have some ideas later. <laughs> um, but... We, let's leave that one hanging. Which, side note, um, we're just going to go ahead and throw that out there again, that we don't have all the answers to these questions. <laughs> yeah. so we're going to humble ourselves a little bit and just be very honest and vulnerable with y'all. That's right. <laughs> and just, again, remind you, these are our thoughts and our uh, beliefs, and we are not God, and we don't have all the answers. So mm. we're going to... Um, honest questions for yeah. a deeper faith. <laughs> Some of them has a lot more gray area than others, so... Yeah. Um. I know that we've talked a lot about the Bible and what the Bible says about who God is, but I think it would be uh, bad for us not to mention the prophets because the <laughs> prophets take up a lot of space yes. <laughs> in the Old Testament. Um, but uh, just kind of as a heads up, there are both major and minor prophets, um, and a prophet is somebody who speaks on behalf of God. Um, a prophet is not necessarily a fortune teller. That's important. Mm-hmm. But the prophet is someone who is speaking on behalf of God. Um, God has given them a word for the people. Prophets are in relationship with the community. Um, and often they're speaking to like a king or, uh, or, you know, or a judge or someone who, you know, someone who has some kind of weight in a community um, or in the community and God's um, special and peculiar community of the people of Israel. Um it's really important to to hold on to the themes that exist in the major and minor prophets, um, which are inarguable in my reading of the prophets. Um, the themes the prophets are concerned about are righteousness and justice, which mean the same thing. Um, and more specifically, when you break these down into examples, what does righteousness and justice look like? It looks like care for the outcast, concern for the neighbor, 
economic justice is um, like huge in the prophets. There's language of do not exploit your workers. Like, I don't know how you can be any more clear than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the idea of the suffering servant. I didn't want to talk about Isaiah without talking about yeah. that, especially as a Christian pastor. Um, but um, Christians apply the suffering servant, the, the language around the suffering servant to our Christology, meaning um, when we are writing a theology about who Jesus Jesus is, specifically like as the one part of the Trinity, we use the language from Isaiah to describe that suffering servant. Um, I think in a broader context, the suffering servant texts from Isaiah help us understand who God is and how God is um, suffering with, for, and on our behalf. Um, so whether or not that's Jesus or God, I think it's that's for a different podcast episode when we're mm-hmm. talking about Christology. <laughs> um, but just to name that that's in there. And of course, for Christians, like the incarnation of Jesus is part of who God is. Um, God, you know, if Jesus is the human form of God, then what Jesus says, thinks, does, how Jesus moves, we don't really know what Jesus thinks, but um, what we see in Jesus points us toward God and who God is. I've been talking for a long time. <laughs> this is nuts. I wish this was like a interactive podcast so somebody could be like, these like are my questions in. about all the things you like just said. Like a radio said. show. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Maybe that's next on our digital discipleship. <laughs> What do you think? Should we shift? Should we talk about the nature of humanity? Or is there more on God? Yeah, I think overall, and you mentioned this slightly earlier, but getting to the point of like, what's even like, what's a general blanket statement observation of who God is? God is love. And Mm -hmm. you mentioned that earlier in a little comment, but I think recognizing God's primary motivation of interacting with us and all of humanity and creation love encompasses all the other aspects of who God is in Mm -hmm. God's character and as creator, as being in relationship with humanity, as comforter, as protector, whatever you want to say that, I mean, Mm -hmm. you fill in the blank of who you understand God to be. And that's kind of the driving force behind that. Um, But yeah, to look to the second part of this question of, who is God, but who are we? So what's what's the nature of humanity's relationship with God? So on the flip side of this relationship, now looking at us, um, and by us, I mean all of humanity, not just me and you, um, what is, <laughs> yeah, what what is the nature of our relationship with God? Yeah. Well, I think to be really basic, I think we would say if God is creator, then we are created. We mm-hmm. are creation. Uh, we are not all of creation. We are a part of it, yeah. um, a small part of it. Um, and so uh, if God is creator, we are created. Um, you know, in the New Testament, we also hear the language of you are my beloved, mm-hmm. um, which through um, theologies that include like language about adoption, like we have kind of taken that that promise on as a, as a promise and an endorsement of all of humanity, the belovedness of humanity and others would say that applies to all of creation as well, um, which is a really beautiful way to think about if God is love, if God's primary action is always love, if God's primary motivation is always love, then the in, the receiving side of that would be that we are loved. Mm-hmm. If God is always love, then we are loved. Um, and if we seek to live our lives, like if, if living a faithful life is something we're concerned with, then it would stand to reason that we would 
imitate God. And if God is love, then we would imitate God's love um, as best we can. And to be honest, like, I don't know about you, but I could spend every hour of every day trying to think about what that would look like. And I would never get it right. Yeah. Like that's, and like last week when we were talking about the Bible, this kept coming to mind too, because, and, and maybe when we talk about law and rules of the Bible and kind of the subjective nature of those things, um, sometimes when you try to apply them across time and space, um, to me, it's important to carry a lens of love, of God's love, mm-hmm. when I'm analyzing these things and kind of making moment by moment decisions. You know, does this look like how I think God's love would look in this moment? Yeah. You know, um, anyway, we'll save that for a future episode. <laughs> um, to talk about what, you know, who are we or like what is what does it mean to be human um, in relationship with God? I think, you know, we have to talk about sin. Yeah. Um, I, Even though we don't like to talk about it. We don't it, like it. Um, we avoid it often and... I, I could probably. I feel like there are limited conversation numbers of times that I've talked about sin in church. Oh yeah, which is like, you know, kind of scary and all, <laughs> also yeah. probably not the best thing ever too. But something we like to avoid. It is, and it seems like there's like a pendulum with it because you know when I was growing up in conservative Baptist circles, like sin was a weekly topic. Yeah, and it was always certain specific sins. Um, yes. You know, like usually relating to sexuality in some way, shape, or form, because that was kind of the low-hanging fruit that preachers felt like they could throw darts at or whatever, um, to mix metaphors. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it seems like in more kind of contemporary thought, we're swinging away from that because I think culturally, like, we're tired of hearing about sin. Yeah. And yet there is a very privileged posture and just being able to say like i'm tired of hearing about sin like i don't yeah. really want to you know, i don't want to deal with that today <laughs> yeah now that we've come out of well some of us have come out of purity and shame culture you know like yeah. trying to we've 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 been shamed about it a lot so like what do we yeah. what do we do with it now when it you know yeah and like we in that purity and shame culture that we grew up in sin is an individual act it's yes. an individual transgression or choice that we make, and if it's a marginally decent definition, then it's like an individual choice we make that separates us from God, usually by making a poor decision, right? Yeah. Um, so it's a it's it's something that we do that separates us from God. But what liberation theologians point out um, in ways that often can be hard for us to hear is that sin is also communal. Mm. In fact, James Cone, who's kind of the father of liberation thought or Black liberation thought, says that. Um, that sin uh, points more to, com- or he points more to communal communal sin, kind of in the way of oppression, um, and describes overcoming sin as uh, the liberation of the oppressed. Um, and if you want some more um, juicy James Cone quotes <laughs> around communal sin, I have like another page of those, um, which I would love <laughs> to go into now, but I'm not going to. But I think for us to kind of take a step back and recognize that sin is is indeed. In my opinion, sin is what separates humankind from God, uh, from love of God, from love of self, Mm -hmm. and from love of neighbor. Um, And so anything individual or collective, anything personal or systemic that violates um, the the affirmation of God's love for God, our love for God, God, you know, and and God's love for us, ourselves, and God's love for all of creation, anything that gets in the way of that is sin. Um, And 
yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I've had a personally just had to rethink what sin is and re- recognize that the injustices of the world that have marginalized people groups systemically <laughs> that's part of sin too like you mm-hmm. know like the idea of sin being communal i think goes against a lot of what i grew up in and just the evangelical circles i did but yeah um recognizing that it's more than just you know my list of my checklist of all the bad things i've done in my life yeah. um but it, that all of us are a part of that in and by us i mean humanity of like it's the like oppression is a bigger thing than just like my my individual actions yeah um and learning liberation theology and other kinds of things like that has expanded my own view of that um and i think one of the other questions that kind of goes along with the sin conversation about our relationship with God, though, kind of going back to what we talked about when we were discussing the story of Job. It's like, why does this suffering, like, why do we sin? Like, why does suffering exist? Mm-hmm. Um, why do bad things happen to good people? You know, mm-hmm. the tr- traditional question of theodicy, which is, you know, a very seminary word. Um, yeah. But, like, why Why would—I have questions I've gotten from teenagers. They're like, why does God let— bad things happen if god created the world to be good why would sin even exist and you know those are some heavy questions yeah. that we may not have answers to but but what do you think about that like where, where where's your entry point to those kinds of yeah to that thought because that's obviously could be its own yeah, that could be another yeah and there are like there are volumes of scholarly uh pieces on this you know there are books on this many 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 books on this um and this is a piece of you know systematic thought and you know i think in a minute maybe if we have time we can get into like different schools of thought in terms of theologies that mm-hmm. have informed your thinking or my thinking because um, we could never even name all of them yeah right but um in addition to like a traditional systematic theology which is basically like white european theology mm-hmm. um Process theologies and uh, liberation theologies kind of inform my thoughts on a lot of things and the ways that I uh, that I find scripture to really come alive when I use those lenses. Um, and I think process is really helpful here. Um, and here's my disclaimer: I do not have a PhD in process thought or process mm-hmm. theology. I'm not a, an expert in the field. I just am a lover of it, <laughs> and so I know enough maybe to be dangerous. But I think um, with this problem of evil and suffering. Classic theology a lot of times merges them together Mm -hmm. and cause, like, sin and suffering are, like, one thing. But process thought helps us to kind of tease the two apart, reminding us that, like, hard things are a part of the nature of the created order. Hmm. Like, volcanoes erupt. Yeah. Earthquakes happen. Hurricanes come. And I don't care what someone tells you on the news— the hurricane that blew through is not a result of the sinfulness of the city. Like, God doesn't sit up on a throne on high and say, oh, this city is 59% evil, and so I am <laughs> going to send a storm through to wipe out innocent people yeah. and guilty. That, that's not how that works. And and while people may have thought that a long, long time ago, science, remember those, peop- those, those formers of our theology? Yeah. Science and what we learn about how the world works— 
is a former of our theological conclusions. And so in process theology, I really, I love the way that they kind of deal with this question, saying that suffering exists as part of like natural evil, what we've called natural evil throughout Mm -hmm. more of Christian history. Um, And there's not really, it's not a problem to solve so much as it is a, a reality of a dynamic ecosystem, meaning God, humanity, creation are all in a dynamic relationship with one another. Mm-hmm. And when you're in a dynamic, meaning like moving, always changing, always interacting, um, conflict happens. And um, suffering is the result of that conflict. Um, so that helps me kind of think through, like, it's not God inflicting natural evil. It's it's the created order interacting with itself and doing that dance. And it is part of the nature of being created that we will experience suffering sometimes. Now, sin is different. Sin is something that um, we can commit, so to speak. It's missing the mark. It's falling Mm -hmm. short. It's failing. It's being flat out nasty one day. Like, you know, it's participating um, in systems of evil and choosing not to look at them. Like, those are sins um, that people can do. And so anyway, that's enough on that topic. But process theology really helps me. I, that language I like because mm-hmm. it logically makes sense. And I can put myself in situations and then kind of look in the mirror and say, did I sin here? What was the consequence of the sin? Am I participating in sinful systems? How do I need to engage to change my behavior, to change the systematic behavior? Um Anyway, that's kind of, that's where I am, and that's kind of how I got there. Um, If I can go a little more on this topic, or or maybe, go ahead. One thing, another sub-question to this that Uh one of our youth asked, if in relation to, like, God letting suffering happen in the world, um, that led them to think, well, okay, if humans make bad decisions, sinful decisions, Mm but then if traditionally a lot of times we're told, well, God knows all things and plans things and is all-knowing mm-hmm. and all these things, do we really have free will to make those decisions? Mm. Um, or why does God make – why does God let us make those decisions? Mm-hmm. Or in this teenager's uh, words, are we just puppets in mm-hmm. God's play? <laughs> what would you have to say about that and how does that relate to yeah. the process theology and other yeah. things you've learned about? Big question, I know. I mean <laughs> – I love this question so much because it tells me that we have a critical thinker on our hands. Like we have somebody (laughs) who is taking the Bible seriously and also looking at the world faithfully Mm -hmm. and saying, help me make sense of all of this and help me find God at work here. And that is a gift. And so I just want to affirm the question. Um, Again, this is where process helps me um, because process thought accounts for, um, well, process thought just kind of is not concerned with God's eternal nature, immutable nature, Mm -hmm. impassable nature. So, like those omnis that we often think about when we think about God as omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient, Mm -hmm. um, those are very much driving the concerns of classical theologians, um, white European theologians um, are concerned with those things. A lot of our hymns are yeah. concerned. If you want to know where your theology comes from, look at your hymn book. Yeah. Um, you know, are concerned with those things. They are definitely in some of our more traditional church doctrines. But process theology um, 
says, you know, what if we were to take those out for a minute and just set them on the table and see if they play here, given mm-hmm. what we know about time, given what we know about science, given what we know about the natural order, given what we know about um, a philosophy, ethics, et cetera, social sciences. So process begins to include all of those things. Um, and one of the key things about process is that God affects, A-F-F-E-C-T-S, and is affected by time. And so that's the um, unchanging kind of piece um, and probably the the non-temporal piece. Um, so that's two of the omnis. But God is interacting with creation. So creator and created are interacting with one another in real time as time unfolds. Mm-hmm. And so if that is true, there is not a future to be known yet because we are co-creating that. Um and I think that's compelling because it relieves God of the pressure <laughs> to have to to be on the side of free will or puppet, you know? Yeah. Um, well, and does that speak to the relational nature of God, too? Because, like, yeah. if we truly are in relation—I mean, in relationship with God, then God's interacting with us in the same way that we interact with God in our daily lives, in, this, like, in the decisions we make, but also, like— that means that God's responding to us too. Yeah. If like, can you can you imagine like having a conversation with your parent who's like giving you a little bit of freedom, and they already like have decided what you're gonna do? Yeah. Like that's just maddening. Yeah. I mean, sometimes that happens, but right. <laughs> yeah, but right. like you know, like in relationships with people, parent, friend, sibling, whatever. Like in true relationship, that's that's a relationship built on love. You're. Interact, you're responding to each other's yeah. actions and words and thoughts. And um, I don't know, that's, well, that's one way that I've been able to kind of grasp my mind around process theology too and like how God's affected by what humanity's doing on earth and yeah. the time and all those things. Yeah. You know, one of the things that my um, first theology professor, Frank Tupper, used to say, he spent a lot of his, if not most or all of his academic career um reflecting on the death of his wife and um, the immense suffering that came from that. And so he always would say things like, God does the best that God can, Mm. you know? And to me, that speaks to suffering and it speaks to uh, the free will question and God's interaction with us. Um, But I I think it's important here also to look at the Bible. I mean, if we're going to keep circling mm-hmm. back to the Bible, again, there are different voices emerging from the Bible around how much God knows. Um, like, for example, in Genesis 22, uh, in the Abraham and Isaac narrative or saga, um, God says at the end of it, for now I know that you fear God. Mm. Now I know. Now I've seen what you were going to do, and now I know that you fear God. And so, blah, 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 blah. And so if God knew already, then why wouldn't God have said, or why wouldn't the, the story go, for God already knew, and Abraham did exactly as God knew Abraham was going to do, and so now the story can go on. Hmm. Um, and of course, that stands in contrast with uh, the text when David writes the Psalm, you know, 139, and talking about how God has you know, searched me and known me, mm-hmm. knew my inner thoughts, you know, Um Anyway, so there are a lot of psalms that kind of bear witness to God's knowing. Um, So there are two things that are kind of at odds with one another in terms of how much God knows about human activity. And of course, like the prophets, 
are a lot of ultimatums. Do this or this mm-hmm. will happen. Do this or this will happen. If you do this, I will then do this. Um, yeah. And that seems like a waste of breath if God already knows how yeah. things will unfold. And I wonder if there's, I mean, there's obviously a tension there yeah. with those things conflicting. But I also wonder if there's space for both of those things to be true. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because it's comforting for us to know, like, God knows what's going to happen. So, yes. like, when we do face the suffering and things, like, that wasn't a s- true surprise or, like, it's something that God can help us walk through. Yeah. But then there's also, like, freedom in knowing that, like, God allows us to make decisions and be able to – and that God will respond to the – you know, yeah. like, there's – I think there's – good and bad in both and like letting them sit in the same space together i think is helpful even though it's more gray area and brings up even more questions but i think that's okay me too and like that's one of the things that i think is so freeing about asking questions and also maybe this is at the heart of like why i care so much that people understand that there are so many theologies like you couldn't even list them all but like we will never understand fully the mystery and the beauty of all that God is. Mm -hmm. We just can't. That's part of being created. We will never know fully our creator, right? Yeah. But these, the words of the theologians and the schools of theology that are out there help provide a different perspective, a little bit of a different window into who God is. And so if anything that we've talked about in this episode or in this series or anything you hear on Sunday or anything you read on your own, like if it causes you discomfort, that's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And I like to remind myself of the two words, what if, you know, like nobody has a corner on complete and full understanding of God. And so when you're reading the words, you can say, huh, I've never thought about that before. What if God really is like this? Mm. What would that mean for me? for my life, for God, for Jesus, for the Holy Spirit, for my neighbors? Like, What would that mean? And just let those things be out there. Um, I don't have a full, coherent, closed theological system that is impermeable. (laughs) And I've been studying this stuff for a long time. And I hope that I never have a full, closed, impermeable theological system, because that means I will have lost a sense of wonder, right? Which is... That's what makes it fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, that's the whole point of what we're doing with our Lent theme of seeking. It's yeah. it's a journey. It's not a one-stop shop to, here's all your answers to all of life's questions. But the questions that we're asking today are, we're going to have 10 times more questions in 10 years or whatever that is. And seeking out those honest questions and diving deeper into the what-ifs of life and of who God is and of who we are, I think are important. Mm. Um but as we wrap up here today, I asked, I was just wondering if you want to share any any last nuggets of wisdom, or do you want to leave anyone, well, leave everyone with some of your favorite theologians? Oh my gosh! Or? Well, I I want to give you a list of all my favorite theologians because like they're like if you have I don't know baseball cards and like you pull out like your favorite like <laughs> yeah. rookies or whatever like none of these are rookies but they're all like my favorites. So if I had a flip one of those flip things in my wallet where I'd put my favorite cards, like these are the people whose faces would be on the cards. Okay, so I, as I've said before, like the main schools of thought that have shaped my thinking around a lot of these things that I find helpful, um, Karl Barth is like kind of a basic, and, and I'm not even 
I kind of don't even want to say I would find him helpful, but I feel like you can't do theology <laughs> unless you wrestle with Carl Bart. Yeah. Um, but so we've got Bart, Paul Tillich. I absolutely adore. Um, I love um, Tillich's work, systematic, and the smaller books on different topics he mm-hmm. wrote. Um, not crazy about John Calvin, but a, a good example of a closed system. No offense to my Presbyterian sisters and brothers, who I love. Um, <laughs> and John Wesley, obviously the father of the Methodist tradition, um, with with his own kind of system. So those would be some classic systematic theologians that you could turn to process theologians um like the three well process theology is kind of built on alfred north north whitehead's process philosophy and like the the first three like prominent theologians in that use that philosophy would be charles hartshorn john cobb and eugene peters i haven't read hartshorn but i've read cobb and peters um some really cool voices who are adding um to that chorus Catherine keller um she's fantastic um, does some really cool stuff with eco-theology and theologies of becoming. Love her. Marjorie Suhaki, um, she, that's where I got some of the stuff on sin um, and suffering. So she's really, really brilliant. Um, and she's really good there, in my opinion. Um, liberation theology, as a student at Union, I studied with James Cone. And so I think he is like definitely the superhero of superheroes. <laughs> really hard to read. Um, and he's actually yes. the one who reminded me that you have to talk about sin if you really want to do serious theology. Mm-hmm. Um, Ebony Marshall Terman is a womanist theologian. That means she is a black woman doing theology specifically from that perspective and for the liberation of other black women. Um, she is powerful, mm-hmm. brilliant, hard to read, really good. Um, Elizabeth Johnson, feminist theologian, also does some eco-theology, really cool. Um, she's a nun, and I love nuns, um, teaches at Fordham. Uh, Miguel de la Torre, Latin American liberation theology. He's actually the author of a book that we'll read together uh, in a few months. We'll do a book club on on um, liberation theology for armchair theologians, and he wrote that book. Um, so there are a lot of people doing some really cool stuff, and um, I'm curious who you guys are all reading. Yeah, I mean, yes, a lot of these people have shaped my own theology and were people I studied in seminary and who I uh, want to continue studying and learning from. We're right before this episode, Chrissy and I were talking about, oh, as we were preparing for it, how much we miss school in different ways. Yeah. More, for me, it's more the learning and the... Uh, <laughs> she misses the learning. I miss the learning, yeah. not so much the papers and the tests and the studying, yeah. um, but wanting to, you know, dive getting to prepare for this and wanting to dive back into some of my seminary books and notes and things and also expand my own list of theologians as well. Um, And so we'll link all these names and people into the show notes so that you can check them out if you want to and want to nerd out like we do. Um, (laughs) Tell us if you do. We want to (laughs) know. Yeah. um, But hopefully this is a good starting point as to um, some asking who is God and who are we? And, you know, I think if we can just wrap this up in one basic sentence, I don't know, um, is, you know, God is love. And we are invited to love God and to love others. And that's kind of the call for our lives. And as we are wrestling with who God might be for each of us, and that may look different in different Mm -hmm. ways, um, you know, we connect to different parts of God's character in the different stages of our lives. And so, But it's all founded on that four-letter word that we like to uh, use, Mm. um, and that's love. And so, 
We hope as we continue in this series of honest questions over the next few weeks that you'll join us again um, as we continue diving deeper into some of your questions. And if you have questions and want to send them our way, we are more than um, welcome to uh, receive those and yeah. to throw them in there. We'll probably be doing an episode at some point where we just, you know, kind of rapid fire questions and what answers we may or may not have. Um, <laughs> but it's been so great to talk with you, Chrissy, and to share. Thanks. To hear your um own journey through theology and who you understand God to be. Um, and also want to shameless plug our intro and outro music yes. for this series slash for the Living Stone now. Um, our own minister of worship. Worship, yeah. Music um, and the arts. Worship, music, and the arts. Christian McIver, he wrote um, the song Living Stones, and that has kind of become our anthem here at Greystone. Yeah. Uh, if you've never seen our campus, it's covered in gray stones everywhere um so <laughs> that has become kind of a part of um our i don't know kind of theme song in a way yeah. and we, so we wanted to use that here on the living stone um for our music so thanks to christian for sharing that with us um but it was great to talk to you and we'll see you next week see ya we will bring god's ring here and in the love of christ be there doing the word making it hurt table and be fed from near and far come as you are here you will never be alone in the glory of God we're building a church of living